But uh, for me, it was a matter of taking action. Don't just sit and think about something. Ask yourself what life would look like if you just took the action. Too many of us will sit around and think about it, but not do anything to go towards that vision, that dream, that seed that we have inside of us. What would life look like if you actually took the action and stepped into your purpose or stepped into that vision and that dream that was inside of you? It'd be a powerful thing. Our world would be different just because people would be taking action. And it's said that action takers get rewarded. On this episode, Patrick and I had the honor of interviewing and having a great conversation with David Combs, a musician, an author, but just exemplifying what it means to take action and go out there and put out those visions and those dreams that you have inside of you. Because he decided to take the action and because he understood the power of his story, he was able to tap into the music side and share his vision and his dreams through his music, which has led to being able to write a book and share more of that vision and the impact of what it means to go out there and plant the seeds and watch them grow. Take the time and audit and ask yourself, what do you need to do to take that action? What dreams are you holding back because you aren't taking the action? Other than that, our fellow Legacy Ninjas, enjoy the episode and we'll catch you later. What is up, our Legacy Ninjas? Welcome to the next episode of Legacy Digging with Two Native Sons. As we discussed, this is an aspect of having people come on, share their perspective, things that they've done that is making a huge impact in the lives of others and really improving the culture and the society that we have around ourselves. So my name's Scott. I've got my co-host here. Patrick Murakami. And so today we have the honor of having Dave Combs on with us as our guest, a phenomenal individual, really the language of music being a universal language is a big, huge thing that really connects everyone. And so when you're going through and finding things that can push you forward, help you get to that next level, it's one of those things of how can we bring people along with us? How can we impact individuals? And so, Dave, when you think about it, because I know we had our conversation and really tapping into the music side and bringing out uh, your song, Rachel's song, and what that does for individuals, when you look at the legacy that you're building and creating, how does music intertwine with how you want to impact the world? Well, I think, as you well stated, that music all has a, an impact on people all over the world, regardless of the language they speak. I think music is pretty much a universal language. Yeah, we have different styles. There's, you know, there's a Latin style. I love Latin music with the rhythms and everything. But then there's the classical style. I love classical music. There's jazz. I love jazz of all kinds. But it's a universal language. I think that it just connects with people. And, and, it, and it can also transport you from where you are, maybe thinking about troubles and bad times and things, bad things happening. It can transport you to a place where it's peaceful and and you're just your stress levels are just way down lower and 
you can I think it affects your your health. You can be a healthy, more healthy person, it can bring your heart rate down, it can lower your blood pressure and does all kinds of good things. So my music, I, I deliberately create my music that I enjoy. And it just so happens that a lot of other people do, too. So it, that's kind of what my mission is to spread my music out around around the world to people that like to hear that kind of music. I love that. Uh, so I've gone to school for ministry. I've looked at a lot of different things. And one of the aspects uh, that I have was always pointed out to me was in the book of Psalms. Right. And they talk about how David casted out demons just by playing the harp. And a lot of people don't realize that the intentionality of just the music itself, right? You throw in lyrics and you create a full song on top of it. But I love that you said that, you know, that it can heal the body because truly, I mean, you know, there's music that's out there to help us sleep. There's different tones all throughout that can help us in different aspects that a lot of people don't realize. So thank you so much for pointing that out. Yeah, you know, my namesake, David, that wrote the book of Psalms, you know, I, I, I really, I told somebody the other day, I would give anything if I could transport myself back to David's palace and just sit there and listen to him play that harp. Now, what songs did he play? What melodies did he play? Mm-hmm. And you can just imagine the, the joy and the, the awe and the just the inspiration from sitting there listening to him. And he probably was very accomplished. He didn't do anything halfway, <laughs> as near as I can tell. <laughs> right. So I, I guarantee you he was a great harpist. So uh, anyway, I would love to do that. Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, and I, I find it unique because you have your book and you talk about the story of Rachel's song and really the impact that that had with individuals reaching out, the letters that you received, and just the the great feedback that you received of that impact of that song and how it was receptive by so many individuals. So I find it interesting because there's an excerpt in here that I was looking with uh, the review, and it comes from Jack Canfield, which is huge, getting this type of review from Jack Canfield. And he talked about this one part that your book is almost a primer in what to do if you want to get something out into the world. Mm. And so I shared that with Patrick. And when we look at what we're trying to accomplish, and we're trying to help people tap in and extract that legacy because it's all in us but sometimes we just get in our own way and so with jack having that highlight for your book think about the music and how you talked about you want to impact people and when you hear jack canfield share that excerpt with your book really what does that speak volumes to you and what does that do for you in regards to what you're putting out there within your music well, it was certainly reaffirming, you know, and I, it's hard to believe it's been over a year and a half since I met Jack and we became fast friends. And as you could tell from reading the forward, he wrote the forward to my book and he was so genuinely uh, supportive of me and encouraging. And when he read my book and saw all the journey that I had gone through and he had gone through some of the same kind of things with his writing of his book you know chicken soup for the soul didn't start out as a mega seller it was he was trying to get people to carry it in little stores like i was trying to get people to carry my music and so he and i identified with each other and how hard you have to work and keep your vision in front of you as to where you want to go and and that journey of how i did accomplish what i did was what really connected with jack and he said it will you know your your book's just like a, a primer to how to get things out there and i thought wow that's a great quote so Yes, uh, that's uh, 
when it when it comes from Jack Canfield, who sold over seven hundred million books, uh, that's that's a big deal. So I, he is a, a wonderful person. Absolutely, I'm so glad to hear that as well because oftentimes you just never know, right? What the what the person is like behind the success. Obviously, I think as you experience more, you understand the hard work that goes behind it and have an appreciation for it. But you can have an appreciation for someone's hard work, but maybe not the person. In this case, sounds like both, which is amazing. Uh, Scott and I are both avid fans of uh, Jack Canfield as well. So uh, I think we all resonate with that. And, you know, it's always nice to hear that, you know, the people that you admire are also genuinely uh, or genuine people who also want to give back. Um, I do want to dive into the segment about how did you get into music and what allowed you to really take kind of music to this whole level? Did you know you were going to get here or did you ever feel like you were going to get there? Or, or, you know, how did that process come to be? Well, I really, it wasn't anything that I, I I can't look back and say, you know, since I was a little kid, I I was going to be an author and I was going to be, you know, (laughs) have 15 albums. Oh no, I can't say that for sure. I can tell you that my foundation of my, my music and my my family and the place I grew up in, the people I was around in church and family settings, being around people who loved music. Now, they weren't all, you know, professional musicians, but, you know, there were great singers and piano players and organists at church and choir directors. And my music teacher in high school it was my own version of Mr. Holland's Opus, if you've seen that movie. That's my Uncle Pat, anybody from East Tennessee, if you say, did you know Uncle Pat? Well, they'll know exactly who you're talking about because he was our music teacher. He was our inspiration. So that gave me kind of a foundation for when my music did come along. Now, I was <laughs> I was 33 years old when I wrote Rachel's song. Well, now you may ask, well, why in the world hadn't you written a song up until then? Well, nobody had ever told me you can write a song. Now, that sounds crazy, but honestly, nobody had ever told me. Now, if they had, I probably would have sat down and tried to write a song. and Maybe I would have, but nobody ever told me. So I sat down in January of 1981 at my piano, like I did almost every night, to, to relax after I came home from work, play something on the piano. And that night, I happened to play this tune. And it was a tune that I just played. It wasn't one I had heard before, or I I didn't even think about it, really. I just played this song. And it didn't have a name, of course. And I didn't even really think about it as writing a song. My wife came home from work uh, a couple of days later, and she said, uh, what's this song I've got stuck in my head? I've been humming it all day long. You know how you, I think they call it an earworm. Well, she had this earworm working all day long and she's hummed a little bit of it. And, and she says, what's the name of it? And I said, it doesn't have a name. What? Yeah, I just made it up. So she got all excited. Well, have you written it down? No, no, I hadn't written it down. It's a, I've got it up here. She said, y'all, no, no, no. You, you, something might happen to you and then that song would be gone. So I wrote down the melody and the chords on a you know piece of manuscript and put it in my piano bench. So I did have it. She was happy and I was happy. So played the song, you know, periodically just for fun. And then two years later, some friends of ours had a baby girl and her name was Rachel. And we were asked to be her godparents. So we went to her christening service and, and all through the service, I'm sitting there and listening to all these wonderful words about little Rachel. And then up at the front of the church is a grand piano, much like you see in the front of my book. There was a little baby grand piano. 
And I kept looking at that piano, and I, at the end of the service, I punched Linda, and I said, do you think it would be a good time now for me to play this little tune? And she said, well, yeah, it's it's a very appropriate. So I went up and asked the family if it'd be okay, because I didn't want to, you know, crash the party. They weren't there to hear me play a piano piece. So they said, oh, sure. So I went over to the piano, and I sat down and started playing this tune. Got halfway through it or so, and I kept hearing the sniffles in the crowd. And, you know, my eyes got a little bit moist as well with, it was pretty emotional because when you hear the song and then you put yourself in, you close your eyes and put yourself in a church service with the christening of a beautiful little baby. If you don't have some tears, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> so anyway, at the end of the song, when I first, when I finished playing it and the notes hadn't even completely died away, I looked over and little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And that got, that's how it got its name. It was just perfect. Everybody loved it. And so that was in uh, 1983. Well, I was still working at AT&T Western Electric, doing a lot of traveling around. And one of the places that I was traveling to, I was a what we would call, I guess, an internal consultant. I was helping the factories implement a new kind of, we called it MRP software, Manufacturing Requirements Planning. I was a a guru in the uh, MRP world. I was APIC certified at the fellow level, so I knew all this software stuff. But I was traveling, and one of the places I was traveling was to Nashville, Tennessee. And Nashville, as you know, is Music City, USA, and there's tons of studios, musicians everywhere. Everybody you run into has probably got something to do with music. One evening, Linda says, why don't you go get a recording made of Rachel's song just for fun, you know, a demo. Okay. So I was driving around Nashville one evening, and I went over into the area called Music Square, and it's where there, for two blocks, I think everything in those two blocks has to do with music. You've got BMI and ASCAP and RCA Studios and all kinds of studios. And So I was looking for a studio to uh, find if I could get somebody to record it. Unfortunately, it was 6 o'clock in the evening. And as we say down south, they rolled up the sidewalks at 530. <laughs> You know, everybody was, it looked like everybody was closed. But I found, I drove down Roy Acuff Place, and at the end of the street was a building that looked like an old barn, and out front had a mock-up of a, a water wheel, you know, an old mill wheel, big, big thing. And on the side of the building, it said the Music Mill. That was the name of the place. Okay, well, this may be my place. Pulled in the parking lot, and sure enough, there was a, a man sitting at a desk. I could see through the glass door, and I knocked on the door, and he, you know, he comes over and unlocks it and opens the door, and he says, hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? And I said, well, sure, I'm, I'm looking for a studio. I've got a little song I want a demo made, and he said, well, come on in. And I, I walked in the lobby, and I looked around, and over here on the left was a big life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. Over here is a great big panorama picture of the group Alabama, Forrester Sisters, gold records, platinum records, photos, you know, like a, a museum of music. And then George says, well, you're in a, this is a studio. You're in one. And so he he was gracious enough to give me a tour of the place. It just so happens. And this was pretty unusual. There was nobody recording at that time. We went into Studio A and he showed me the big recording room, you know, with the recording hall, you could put a, an entire orchestra in there. It had a great big concert grand piano. You know, it was just really impressive. And then we went over to the control room. 
you open up this, you've probably seen these big old thick, about this thick doors that are soundproof with glass where you can, you can see through them, but sound will not go through those. So he, we went into the control room and I thought I had walked into something that would, that would launch a spaceship. It looked like <laughs> NASA, you know, all the, the console I had never seen. I'd never been in a studio now, you know, since then, of course, you, you know what the consoles look like. Some of them are really huge and they are impressive. He told me about all this and I said, well, gosh, George, how much does this place rent for? I was beginning to see dollar signs all over the place here. <laughs> he said, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. I guess he saw my face kind of fall down in this in disbelief. And so he said, no, well, don't worry about it. There's another, the guy that owns this owns a little studio across the street in an old rent house, what used to be a rent house. And it's $15 an hour plus engineer. I said, okay, now I can afford 15 an hour. Now, remember, this was 1986. 125 now doesn't sound like a lot. But back then, 125 an hour was a lot, many times what I made per hour. Sure. So, uh, so that was how I got the tour of the studio. And I told George I needed a piano player. And he says, well, let me think a second. He, I know just the person. He said, let's go back over to the office and I'll look up his phone number. So, he went over to his desk and pulled out his Rolodex. You may not know what a Rolodex is, but it was, <laughs> it was the old way of a, a contact book. Right. It was had everybody's business card on in this thing in alphabetical order. You could, you, it literally rolled and you could roll up to the, the P's for Gary Prim, which who's who he's looking for. And so he wrote down Gary Prim's phone number and handed it to me and said, I think Gary will do you a nice job and give him a call. I'm sure he will. So that was how I got introduced to Gary Prim, the artist that I use on all my albums since then. So I went back to the hotel and called Gary Prim's number and he called me back. I got his answering machine. He called me back in about 30 minutes and uh, told him what I needed. And he said, oh, sure, Dave, just send me a, a lead sheet of the music and a recording of you playing it and we can make this happen. I said, well, Gary, what's a lead sheet? <laughs> I was showing my ignorance of the music business there in Nashville. He said, Oh, it's just a, it's just the melody and the chords of the song. I said, Oh, I've got that. I just didn't know what to call it. So I got back home and I mailed Gary a, my lead sheet and the tape. And two weeks later, we met in a little tiny, that little studio across the street at six o'clock on August the 22nd, 1986. I'll never forget it. You know, it's the first time I'd ever laid eyes on Gary. He comes walking into this little studio carrying his synthesizer. It was a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer for those of your people that like synthesizers. It was a really great analog synthesizer for the day. And so he sets up and I'm in the control room with the engineer and, and Gary sits down at this little baby grand Yamaha piano which I later found out was the first Yamaha baby grand piano that Yamaha ever shipped to Nashville. So oh, this wow. piano, this piano had some history. Yes. Now, wouldn't you love to know all the Nashville recording artists that played on that piano? I could oh, just yeah. envision now here's Elvis sitting there playing. Oh, here's Floyd Kramer sitting there playing, you know, and, and maybe they did. I don't know. But anyhow, Gary's sitting there at this wonderful little baby grand piano playing, uh, starting to get warmed up and, so he says, all right, I'm ready to let's, let's do this thing. Let's, let's record it. So the engineers got the tape recorders all ready. And these are reel to reel two inch tapes. It run 30 inches per second. 
that's and they're big heavy reels now today you can put in your pocket a hundred times what that thing would do uh so he's ready to record and i'm standing there in the control room with looking at gary through the glass window and gary starts to play my song now remember this is the first time i'd ever heard anybody play my music it was i'd always just played it my way well boy was i in for a surprise you know when you get a professional musician to play a piece of music that you write it's going to sound fantastic they know how to do the, the create the arrangements and how to work in the, all the the runs and everything that makes it just sound great so i'm i'm just in awe i'm listening to him play my music and he he gets about halfway through it and and uh he he decides that nah, i didn't like quite what i did right there so he bangs on the keys and tells the engineer well, let's roll it back we'll i'll do it one more take it rolled it back take two he played it through from the beginning to the end perfectly no 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 missed notes no anything so he, he gets up and he come in the control and he listens to it and he said yep that's 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 a good keep so i thought he was done and he said, no, no, we're not done yet. Because I was plenty happy with what he did with just the piano. <laughs> sure, he said, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do some more th tracks on this thing. I'm going to add tracks of some electric piano, which I'm going to double my, what I played on the real piano, on the acoustic. For those that don't know what doubling is, it's basically he's playing the exact same notes that he played on the piano, but on a keyboard, an electric keyboard. And when you combine the two of them, and when you listen to the recording of Rachel's song, you can tell where the piano parts by itself and where the electric piano and the piano come together because it's a richer, fuller, deeper sound to the, uh, the music. So he did that. I thought, wow. And he nailed his notes. I mean, they were just boom, right on. There was no dis disconnect between what he played first and what he played second. Amazing skill. And then he, I thought, well, that's great. And then he says, no, we, we're, we're not done yet. Got <laughs> he said, I got to add some strings. <clears throat> okay. All right. Let's do a little string sounds. And he said, I want to put some bottom in here. So I'm going to add some low strings. So we've got two more tracks of low strings. So he sits at the, got his headset on and he's listening to the other parts of him playing it. And he's playing along with himself and he plays the string parts. And he says, now I need some high strings in here too. We need to give it a little ethereal quality, you know, some, add the, the really breadth to this thing so he rewind do more two more tracks of strings high strings and he said okay now and first of all his arrangement was a little different than mine when you listen to the recording you'll hear a verse and a chorus twice there will be a dramatic change of key up a half a step it does not modulate it does not warn you that it's coming it's just you're here and then next thing you know you're in, instead of key of c you're in the key of d flat and what that does emotionally and musically to you, it just goes, whew, your, your energy level just goes up, just like the music did. Well, for that part of it, he said, I think I need to add some horns. I want to give this some really punch here in the middle. So he added some, some tracks of some horns, did all that. And then he said, OK, I think we got it back in the control room. And we listened to the whole thing. And yeah, I like it. I like it. He, he knew that the engineer could mix it down, make it sound perfect. So I paid Gary his money and he grabbed his synthesizer and I said goodbye and he left. And little did I know that I, I didn't know whether I'd ever see him again ever in my life because that was a one kind of thing. And little did I know that later he would be more like a brother to me. Mm -hmm. he, he and I have done music. We've recorded over 170 songs. 120 of them are ones that I have written. 
Wow. And we have 15 albums, you know, going to Nashville once a week or for a week to record an album is just the highlight of a year. I mean, when, it's really hard to describe when you walk in with piece, music on a piece of paper and you walk out with a masterpiece on a recording. It's just, you know, when you when you've heard a, a song that really moves you, one of, I'm sure each of you probably have your favorite one songs. Now, wouldn't you have loved to been in the studio with those musicians while that was being created? Absolutely. Now, that's the feeling that I that I got from that. So anyway, I know that was a long story, but I, I get so excited about it because it takes me back to those days. And I, it's just wonderful. Well, it's, it's incredible. I mean, there's so much in there that I'm just like amazed by. Go ahead, Scott. I, I know you're. <laughs> It's it's an interesting thing because we've brought this up before that when you're creating a legacy and you're putting it out there, it's a team sport. And so think about it. Like Dave, you had talked, you're like, as somebody told me I could have written music, I might've sat down and done it, but it took that prompting and really something that came up and said, okay, let me go try it. And you didn't back down. Um, so you went out there and you put it forward. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up is they get in their own way. They start overthinking it. And so that point of you sharing it for any legacy ninja that's listening to it, that's a key point to sit down and say, what is it that I want? And what am I doing that's potentially holding me back? And so your story and how this all came into play is huge on people just realizing you've got it, run with it, and don't let holding uh, don't let anything hold you back. Especially yourself, you're your worst worst enemy. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> uh, but then to see everything come together, and like you talked about, you you thought maybe it was only going to be one time, but now look at everything that's taking place, mm-hmm. and you just never know. That that speaks volumes, and it's something that really to sit down. For, like I said, any Legacy Ninja that's listening, sit down and really do that deep dive. And, you know, you have the the uh, seed of a of something inside of you. Uh, I think somebody, there was a, a seed of an equivalent or greater benefit in everything. I forget who said it. Maybe it's W. Clement Stone or some famous philosopher said that. But that's right. You know, there's a seed there. But no seed goes anywhere if you don't plant it. Yes. And, and you have to water it and put it in fertile soil. And, and in my case... I was very blessed to have run into first George Clinton, who turns out to be one of the most well thought of engineer recording engineers in Nashville, Tennessee. He passed away a few years ago. Big full page article on George Clinton in the Nashville newspaper about how well loved he was and how he was just so helpful. These people, they I didn't know them from Adam and they were willing to help me get make the connections I needed to. He introduced me to Gary Prim. I'm so thankful that that's who he introduced me to. And our recording engineer, Ronnie Light, he's been my recording engineer from the, uh, not with Rachel's song, but from thereafter, it was Ronnie Light. And Ronnie's like a brother to me. Good grief. He he and I, we send funny stuff back and forth by email almost every day. <laughs> if I don't get something funny from Ronnie, it's not a good day. So anyhow, uh, those introductions and the team around you. So when you have some something good to to share with the world don't try to do it all by yourself and i think that was the lesson that i learned really big time and jack canfield re- reinforced this for me that you need a team your team around you is your positive people that are going to lift you up and get you where you want to go and if you have you if you have people that are trying to drag you down find a, a graceful way unless they're one of your relatives 
just just don't you just don't deal with that person anymore. You know, you don't have time. You know, life is very limited. You need to spend your time with positive people. <laughs> oh my gosh, Dave, you can come and do our job here um, and have your own <laughs> podcast because you're saying all the things that we preach into the choir for years. Now, one thing that I also wanted to highlight, um, and this is super important that maybe a lot of people would easily miss, I think, but having the support of your spouse, one, because you believed in what you did, but two, to turn around and say, you need to go and get that recorded and push you. Because I think a lot of times people don't have that immediate support from either their spouse or their immediate family. And it gets harder and harder in today's day and age to really have that. You hear more stories about people who've had to like leave and, and, you know, um, leave the situations with their families to be able to make it on their own because they hit, that was that extra push. But in this case, to hear that your wife was behind you from the very beginning, I know for me, that was a big piece for me with my wife in regards to getting into the entrepreneurial world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just wanted to acknowledge that because I feel like that is such a beautiful moment to be able to have that and share that and to have your wife's full support with everything that you've done. Well, I am very blessed. My wife, Linda, Linda Combs, she is, as, as, as we say, I married up. She is, uh, she's Dr. Linda Combs. She has, she's got about more degrees than a thermometer, but, uh, <laughs> she is an, she's a, started out as an educator. She ended up in the banking business and then she got called to Washington, D.C. to be an assistant secretary in the Department of Education under Ronald. She worked for Ronald Reagan was a presidential appointee. Wow. We both of us have gotten to meet and spend time with Ronald Reagan and, and out in California at his library, for example. I was as close to Ronald Reagan as I am to my laptop here uh, many times out there. And so she w- did that and her, her career took off. She, she ends up, ended up with five U.S. Senate confirmed appointments in Washington. She worked for Ronald Reagan. She worked for Ron, uh, George H.W. Bush. And she worked for George W. Bush. And now she is the controller for the state of North Carolina. She's right upstairs now working on her job as running the state office of the controller from our home because of the pandemic. But yes, I am so proud that that she has supported me and I support her. And and yeah, she's got her career, but I've done my thing too. And but they've been simpatico, you know, they've, they've really worked together. And it sounds like we need to get a po- her on a podcast episode. As well, well. <laughs> she's, she's going to retire. She has finally, thank goodness, she's turned in her papers. She's going to retire. She's she's don't tell her, but she's 75 and be 76 pretty soon and still working. She's the wow. she's the, nobody in her organization even close to as old as she is. And she outworks all of them, it seems like. But uh, she did finally turn in her papers to retire end of June because her wow. it, she's on a term appointment. Her term is over at the end of June. Congratulations thank thank goodness. I can't wait for her to be out off of these all day long video phone calls and whatever. And we can go actually do something and go travel. And maybe if COVID will leave us alone, we can go see some relatives and go do a little traveling. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you guys do make your way out to Colorado, please let us know. We would love to be able to sit down with you guys and and, uh, do a dinner with you in person. So, Oh, great. I remember we we did. We're in Denver one time. We were in a hotel. This was crazy, but we were in the hotel when in Denver when they imploded some hotel. I just I never will forget it. We were there watching this thing blow up and the smoke and ash and the dust go everywhere downtown, uh, down Denver. Mm -hmm. That was a long, long time ago. (laughs) 
So I, I find it interesting because you talked about in your bio, the, the amount of letters that you received, which is a, it speaks volumes because there's a quote by Zig Ziglar that stated that I can go and do a bunch of speeches may not make a huge impact in the lives of others, but when they buy my products and the tapes that I have at the time, I can make a huge impact in the lives of others by having those services and the products out there. And so when you look at the letters that you've received, the uh, song with Rachel's song and everything that you're doing with wanting to leave something bigger than yourself, once you're no longer here and you want your music to outlive you, when you look at kind of everything that's taken place, and it sounds like you're living out your legacy by putting out the music, by connecting with people, helping people out with the voiceover pieces and whatnot. When you look at what you're doing now and everything that has transpired, what is that for you, the, the big thing that you want to do now to really cement your legacy? Or what is it for you that maybe be that one or two things that you're like, I've got to do this to really plant that flag and have this move forward very fast for you? Well, you know, I've been hard at work doing podcasts just like this, two or three of it um, a day, and, and, um, and they're all really, really fun to do. And my mission is to tell my stories and hopefully to intrigue the people watching and listening to at least be curious enough to go to my website at Combs Music and click on Rachel's song and at least listen to it for themselves because I know firsthand from those 50,000 letters that I've gotten that when somebody in the right state of mind listens to my music, it grabs them, it touches them in their heart, in their soul. And so my mission is really to try to, to touch those millions of other people that have never heard my music. I'm trying to find my best ways to reach all those people. I'd love to, for example, have a an opportunity to sit on some a big television show or whatever where the audience was in the millions where it would instantly get heard by lots of people. I'd love to play Rachel's song on a big TV show or something where people could hear it. That would be just marvelous. Now, I'm realistic enough to know that Dave Combs from the mountains of East Tennessee and Winston-Salem, North Carolina may not ever make it to those big shows, but who knows? You know, somebody watching this podcast may say, nope, I want to have, I'm going to help this guy out. I'm going to, we're going to do something here. But in any case, my mission is to really just spread the word. My, my book was written because of all those stories I got in the mail, 50,000 of them. And they were just so precious stories and so touching. I had to get them down and people were telling me, Dave, all these stories you tell about getting it recorded and all these funny things and interesting things, you need to write it down. Well, the pandemic came along. Well, you know what happened then? None of us could go out and do anything. You know, you couldn't go visit people. You couldn't go out to restaurants. So my wife and I were sitting there in November a couple of years ago, and she says, well, you know that book we've been talking about for years? I think it's time. You know, notice that it's Linda's idea again. She, <laughs> she, she is the idea person in this family, and she can, she can push my button and, and get me going in the right direction real quick. But uh, she encouraged me to, all right, let's do this thing. If we're ever going to write this book, let's, now's the perfect time. So I committed the time, and I, that's when I hooked up with Jack Canfield. He was having a special, what he calls a, a retreat, where just a few people, there was like 17 of us, hooked up with Jack Canfield for three days. 
on Zoom for 12 hours a day. I mean, we were like in his house. We weren't in his house, but we were on Zoom. And so that's how I met him. And he was teaching us and, and listening to our stories and saying, well, now here's what I would suggest you do. He was really mentoring us through this process. Well, I, you just don't get any better a mentor than Jack Canfield. So that uh, that retreat that I went to really got things in high gear. And it put me in touch with people that I needed to, to help write the book. You need a good editor. You need a good people that really help you through the mechanics of how do you publish a book on Amazon and all those things. It's not just as simple as opening up your word processor and start typing in Word your book. So I did learn a lot. I feel like I ended up with a, another degree. I have my MBA from Wake Forest University. I think my other MBA is my master's in book authoring. <laughs> <laughs> MBA, you know. I like so, that. <laughs> so, but anyway, that was so critical to my getting my book out. And, and I was intentional in making sure the book read like I speak. I didn't want it full of just facts and stuff. I wanted it to be interesting. So I put a lot of dialogue in there and tell the stories. And I'm told by the people that are reading it that it's a it's a page turner. It's a good read. One good friend, he said, Dave, doggone it, you cost me a good night's sleep. I couldn't even put it down. <laughs> That's a great compliment for sure. Yeah. When I'm hearing your story, I'm hearing life of a couple of different hats, right? First, you start off as an artist, kind of in the business world now, an author. So walk us through kind of the experience of what that's been to go from kind of playing around with the piano and the music piece to then having, you know, a full album or 15 albums now, right, behind you and 170 songs later that you've worked on, you know, collaboratively. What does that life look like? And then what does the life as an author look like? And as you bridge all those different gaps together, I mean, what were maybe some of the highs, but also maybe some of the lows for people, uh, some of our listeners who may be kind of juggling different hats for themselves? Well, you know, the uh, putting the hat on of an author, then you start thinking about, well, how can I promote my book? And uh, there's a whole, I think, a business of publishing and getting your, your books uh, reviewed and and rated on Amazon. There's, it's almost like a game that you play to get your books rated on Amazon. I was fortunate that when I released my book, it became a number one or two in several categories. So it did real well. The music part, you know, I'm continuing to try to figure out ways to use my 15 albums of um, 170 or 80 songs that I've recorded. That's a pretty good catalog. And people ask you, why don't you write some more? I said, well, I've got 180 already. If I could just sell what I already have, I'd be doing okay. But I really am trying to focus on how and I can uh, migrate myself from the physical music world of CDs, cassette tapes, and, and those and records way back when. Now it's in the digital world of down. It used to be a lot of downloads, and now it's downloads with mostly streaming. People want to... You know, go on their iHeartRadio or Spotify or Pandora, all these places to hear music just on the fly. So I've worked really hard to put my music in those venues and trying to figure out how to get my music to cut through the noise. It's very, very analogous to your podcast situation. There are only 300, 3 million plus podcasts. And as you well know, trying to get people to listen to your podcast versus somebody else's podcast, that's a challenge. And, uh, you know, same way with my music. You know, why would they listen to my music when they can listen to somebody else's? You know, what's, what distinguishes you 
in your product or your service or whatever from uh, the dozens and thousands of others. So my, my energy is really being spent on trying to figure out how I can best utilize the platforms that we have with the internet. Thank goodness for, you know, Zoom and, and these uh, video conferencing capabilities. We can go anywhere in the world anytime. That, that barrier to entry has been a good thing, but it's also not so good in that not only I can do this, so can the millions of other people. So that back here into the crowded marketplace again. So uh, my, my life is really one of trying to figure out how to not lose the energy and the momentum that I had made over the years with my music and not be overwhelmed by the other competing interests in the world. Now, it kind of bothers me that, for example, for our young people, I, when I grew up, I, I didn't have soccer and lacrosse and all this stuff that I had to do. I mean, we played in the backyard. You know, we had our old pickup football game or baseball game. And, you know, we were hitting rocks with a tobacco stick, you know, instead of baseball. You know, it was very, we made our own entertainment. Or we went on a hike or something. Today's kids are so nailed down with, well, I got to go to soccer practice this night. And I got to go softball this. I got to do this. Got to go miss practice. I, they don't have time for fun. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a lot of time even for music. And for some reason, music has fallen into the out of favor with the things that they want their kids to do. I can't say of any of my neighbors around here that uh, any of them wanted any of their kids to grow up to be a performing pianist or an opera singer or whatever. They want them to go out and compete with their kids on the lacrosse field or whatever. And music has really the loser in this thing because the schools even have taken music out. A lot of them have taken music out. Well, for me, when I grew up, music was a huge part. Uh, yeah, it wasn't an academic kind of thing that where we, you, you just had to have it, but it sure complemented everything else that you were doing. And I think, you know, studies have shown that doing, if you can play the piano, for example, you have a leg up on somebody else that doesn't play the piano when it comes to science and math and those kind of things. It's just they don't know exactly why, but your thinking process is elevated when you have disciplined yourself to make music, whether it's a piano or a violin or a banjo or you know, whatever instrument you, you say, or even a singer. It, people, if you listen to music today, very few have harmony in them. I, that always bugs the heck out of me because I love, you know, the Letterman, uh, the three guys that are the Letterman are good, fr- good friends of ours. We met them many years ago and we've stayed friends with them, but I love their harmonic music. Their, their harmony is so unique. And, you know, you had all those wonderful four-part harmony groups that sang back in the 60s and 70s and, you know, listen to the Carpenters music and, and that harmony that they put in there. Wonderful. And it's nothing like the music that you hear today, which is either just a, a, a very tricky, uh, very fancy. And I'm sure it's difficult to do. I'm not I'm not putting them down for that. But to me, it's not that musical to my ear. It's not very soothing music. It may be ener- energizing. But I don't want to be energized 100 percent of the time. I'd like to. I'd like to have some down, some relaxing time. Yes. So, but I didn't mean to get off on the, my soapbox on the, the lack of music. But uh, I feel pretty passionately about it. Yeah. No, it's just totally understandable. 
You know, you're right. Statistics have absolutely shown, right? I mean, they, they, there's a reason why they tell you to put classical music with the babies, right? To help them not only sleep, but because intelligence levels increase, that kids test better in scoring. You know, you surround them with an instrument in multiple languages at a young age. And, you know, their test levels are off the charts. So I think there's definitely something behind that. And I think that as an artist myself, right, because I uh, do a lot in the spoken word community, again, during COVID, art lost out. You see all the things kind of uh, happening on maybe Spotify as well and all these different things, you know. So, you know, there is definitely something there about trying to be a breakthrough artist in today's world, in the digital world. You know, definitely if you think of other ways in terms of how not only Scott and I, but uh, our audience can support you. Don't hesitate to reach out. We'll be more than happy to do our part. Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a word of mouth thing. You know, you have to tell somebody to tell somebody else. And I guess that's how things go viral. But people are so busy these days, they don't even have time to even share something on their Facebook or, or their social media. They're just so busy, but anyway, we keep, keep plugging away at it. And, uh, at least I know now there's two more people that have been touched by my music. And I appreciate you two guys having me on today and giving me a chance to tell my story. That, that means a lot to me. Absolutely. Um, one of the pieces I always like to include in our podcast episodes is if you had to drop some sort of advice for somebody who was trying to follow uh, in a similar path or journey, you know, maybe either as an artist or as an author. Um, Do you have a single piece of advice that you think would stand out with or that you'd be willing to drop for them? Well, yes, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of principles. uh, In fact, Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles, is full of those kind of advices. (laughs) But uh, for me, it was a matter of taking action. Don't just sit and think about something. If you have an idea and you want to pursue it and you think it has some value in terms of not necessarily monetary value, but societal value to, for people, don't just keep it to yourself. Talk to people, kick it around with people and, uh, and take some action on it and see, see what happens. Now, the other piece of advice I have is don't just bet the bank on something mm-hmm. blindly. You cannot just take your life savings and throw it into an enterprise and realize that, uh oh, that didn't work. Now I don't have anything left. The principle that I used in my music and my music business part of it, not just the creating the music itself, creating the music business was that I did a modeling. It's like a franchise concept where you have something that, you know, you, you work out all the bugs and the details and everything on a small scale before you go big. And to me, that was how I succeeded with my music uh, marketing because I, I went, I sold my music in a gift shop market. It, it became known as the play and sell market. And uh, me and about two other artists back in the 80s really invented that channel. Nobody else was doing it. And mainly because me and the other two artists, the big record companies wouldn't have anything to do with us. They didn't, they didn't want to carry our music. They never heard of us. So we decided, well, okay. We'll just go through the other channels, and we know that people like to listen to music in a gift shop. Well, you go to tourist places, these nice little uh, beautiful shops that sound good. I call it, it looks good, smells good, and sounds good. You go in, it's just a pleasant experience. And so those places were playing my music. And so the when they played it, the customers wanted to take it home with them. 
And those little shops would, I, I only had one album, the Rachel's Song album. There were shops that played that album from the time they opened until they closed and never played anything else all day long and never got tired of listening to it, which was amazing to me. And yet their customers that came in, they sold them by the hundreds and thousands. I had one little gift shop in Old Town Alexandria. I don't know how many thousand dollars worth she sold in a year, but it was big number. And that's when I realized that that model of a gift shop selling my music and playing it worked because I, I did a spreadsheet and I put it for that one little shop. I said, here's what I, how many she sold. Here's what it cost me. Here's what she paid me. And here's my gross profit on the, the, the music. And that was just one gift shop. And over a year's time, she sold thousands of dollars worth of music. Well, my profit was a good, num- good size number. And then's when I, my MBA and my, my technical side kicked in. I said, all right, my spreadsheet, I've got another column over here. What if I just had one gift shop in every 50, all 50 states, just 50? So I had a column two was column one times 50. Well, you look at the bottom line number of the net profit. Hmm. Now that's an interesting number. And I said, okay, let's just do five, five gift shops in every state, 250 total. Column three is 250 times column one. And the bottom line number there, I said, Linda, come here. You got to see this. <laughs> it was twice, twice what I was making at work. And I had a good paying job at AT&T. And so uh, that's when the light, the, the light bulb <laughs> went on in my head and said, okay, Combs, you got to get cracking on duplicating this one little gift shop. Mm-hmm. So my business plan, I knew what the, I knew what the model was. I knew where I wanted to go. I didn't know how to get there yet about how to find all these other gift shops. But I thought to myself, out of the millions of people in this country and tourist, tourist places got to be a lot of places. There's got to be a, a number. And, uh, and there were. I ended up eventually with over a thousand gift shops playing and selling my music. And I was able to quit my job in 1991, tell my boss that I've enjoyed it, but I've got to go home and make, make a living. <laughs> So uh, it was it was a great progress, but it didn't happen overnight. Now I can we can talk a long time about what all I did to find these gift shops. Some of them are intriguing ways of how I use my uh, my data. I, I'm a analytical kind of person. I actually did calculate where the gift shop towns, uh, the tourist towns, were in the United States. I didn't even have to know where they were. I calculated where they were using big data, awesome. and so I. Focused on that, and it took off. I think just listening, it's it's the the mission of what's driving you, the clarity, understanding you have a seed, you got to put it out there, take that action. Like you you talked about, take the action. That's the biggest thing that people need to do is take the action, pivot when you need to. Um, and so it's a testament to the story and what you've done, Dave, is huge. And so you're giving that that nugget there that other people can run with. And it's funny because you'll hear this six or seven times. One person will say it differently and you'll be like, oh, okay, yep, here we go. Let us run with it. <laughs> um, so it, it's huge. I appreciate all that information. And so as we uh, come to the end of the show, uh, the one thing that we really like to drive here is the idea of gratitude. And so when you look at your life, and I have a feeling your wife will be top of this list, um, <laughs> but for yourself, what are a couple individuals and situations that you have gratitude for that have taken place in your life? Well, that goes way back. You know, you look back at your education in your elementary school, high school. There are a lot, a lot of people have really 
certain teachers that took them under their wing and encouraged them. And I had a couple of those. I worked for a gentleman in my college years for all four years. I worked my way through college doing uh, computer work in the college computer center. And my boss, Stan Johnson, was a wonderful mentor from from a character perspective. It wasn't so much. I did learn a lot of tech. He was a great uh, teacher in mathematics and computer science. But I also learned a lot from him and, and about being a good person, a hard worker and helping people. My job was to help graduate students in college prepare the statistics for their thesis that they were writing. I was very good in statistics and I knew how to run them on the computer. And that was my job. But he taught me that. And then basically when I when I was in church, there was a uh, an organist that was she took me under her wing and said, okay, I want you to go over and play the piano and we'll do piano organ duets. And I was nervous as I, you know, I was, I'm, I'm sure she had to put up with a lot of wrong notes from me because <laughs> I was not that accomplished, but that, that pushed me to, to be better. And I knew when I played it right, it sounded beautifully. And, uh, so she, her name was Doris Miller and she passed away uh, many years ago, but she was a big help to me. And, uh, Gosh, the, my music teachers uh, were all helpful. And, and of course, my family, my grandmother Combs was a big inspiration to me. She played the old pump organ and the auto harp. Uh, she was born in 1894 and oh, but wow. she, di- she died in 1989. But she was a huge influence on me musically because she loved music. And every time I went to see her, I had to tune Granny's auto harp up and we'd, I'd take my guitar and we'd play and sing and have just a good time. And so that was a great memory. And my father, he played by ear. Uh, he taught me how to play music on the piano pretty much by ear and, or encouraged me to do that. And uh, so the my, my life is just really full of these wonderful people. And of course, I, the, the, the best one of, of all is my wife, Linda, of course. She is just the, the biggest supporter I have. And and she she pushes me to, to make sure that I am using my gifts to the fullest. Uh, so she wants me to not just sit down and relax sometimes, get over on the piano and write something. <laughs> but she and I love to, as you can see behind me, there's my piano on this side. And over here is a synthesizer. So we play piano. She plays the piano, too. And so we'll play a organ or piano and synthesizer music together or, or put on a doo-wop CD and play along with the uh, the old uh songs from the 60s and the 50s and whatever. We love those, you know, like Unchained Melody and all those CF, CA minor, F and G kind of songs that are just, you can play those chords along with about 90% of the rock and roll kind of songs back in the day. So I, I thoroughly enjoy that. And it's been such a great pleasure to have you on. Scott, was there anything else that uh, you just can't get out? Or, I mean, I'm, for me, I'm sitting here thinking like I could sit here and, have Dave on for like 12 hours straight. But, <laughs> well, um, we, could, we could probably arrange, you know, if you, if you turn me loose, as you can tell, I can talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we would definitely love to, to be able to do this again, uh, for sure. But uh, I am super thankful for your time. A lot of nuggets that you dropped today to hear your story and, and the legacy that you're leaving behind uh, it was truly a blessing for me. And, and I think, I, you know, for Scott as well. Any lasting impressions or anything that you would like to leave us with today before we sign off? I know. I'm sure you guys are, too. Very touched 
by the news we're watching on television these days with uh, the heartbreaking scenes from Ukraine. Yes. It's all about freedom. And I did an album called Celebrate Freedom back in the Gulf Gulf War. This was this album was done in the year that the Desert Storm War took place. I would determine that those soldiers that were fighting for freedom, not just our freedom, but freedom for the company countries over there as well, they deserved a, a leg up when if I could help them. So I have a I have my MBA from Wake Forest University. One of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to fund a scholarship, an endowed scholarship for military people, either the, uh, let's say it's a, somebody gets killed in action and their spouse then is left to, what are they going to do? You know, I wanted to help those people that came back to get an MBA, to have a leg up on their career once they got out of the military. We, we deserve to at least thank them in that way. Yes. So that year I did an album of patriotic music. It's got America, the beautiful, the wind beneath my wings, battle hymn of the Republic and so on. And I was sitting in Atlanta, Georgia, working, still working for uh, uh, AT&T at the time. And I remember when the TV came on at nine o'clock and George H.W. Bush interrupted the programming and said, told America that we are going to war. Boy, that was a sobering. I don't know whether you guys, you're, you're too young for that probably, but, <laughs> but it made an impact on me and a lot of other people. And I remember sitting there in that hotel room, hearing him talk about how we were going to fight for freedom over it wasn't about oil it wasn't about you know personality anything it was about freedom here saddam hussein was trying to take away the freedom of saudi arabia and all the, the neighboring countries so i said okay i now know what i'm going to call my album i'm going to call it celebrate freedom because that's what it's all about we are celebrating freedom and we need to celebrate freedom yes and so i did this album and i said okay we're going to take the proceeds from this album and it's going to fund that endowed scholarship. And I told everybody that I was, when I came out with it, I said, you're going to help support a scholarship. And we did. It came out. It's called the Combs Celebrate Freedom Scholarship at, at Wake Forest University in the MBA program. Wow. That was, uh, I think, uh, in 90, I forget, 94, I believe. It was a, a long, long time ago. No, it wasn't even 94. It had to be, uh, like uh anyway whatever, whatever it was i'm sorry i don't remember i guess i could look at the copyright date on here it says oh it's 1990 1991 i'm time is flying by too quick <laughs> so anyway uh we have given a scholarship to over 27 people wow. since then every year there's been a scholarship awarded and the awardee is always somebody connected with the military they're either you know have been in the military or their spouse is in the military somehow or other and these people have been magnificent students. And and Wake Forest at the time when we did this, they were not recruiting from the military in their MBA program. And so we changed that with this. And because our scholarship recipient got the highest paying job out of MBA school of any of their graduates ever. And so he showed them that, uh, yeah, you better start recruiting from the military because these people know about leadership. Yes. And, and leadership and character and how to do things, how to make something happen. And so we've been really proud. And, and we keep up with these. These We call them our kids. They're not kids anymore, obviously. They've got kids of their own. <laughs> yes. 
But that's what I did to give back, back way back when, as I felt really strongly. And, and since then, we've, we've got a scholarship at East Tennessee State University in the math department. I've got a, we've got a scholarship at Appalachian State University in the music department. And we funded a scholarship at High Point University uh, just last year for students. It's a very substantial scholarship at High Point. And so we're, we're in the give back mode ourselves. We want to support people and make, make the world a better place. That's incredible. I do have a couple of people I know that are connected to kind of the, the Air Force adoption because they come to the Air Force Academy here locally. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple of business owners that are involved with kind of fostering them while they're here, things like that. So I will also make some connections, uh, also connected with a group called uh, Night for Heroes. Mm -hmm. And those are for the fallen soldiers who have been in combat, participating with the sons, basically, who who their fathers have have fallen. So I will definitely get them connected because I think that would go hand in hand. Sure would. Organization. But uh, yeah, we'll make sure we get that posted in our show notes for sure. Great. When you are lucky or you're fortunate enough and blessed to succeed it's time to share the the uh, the wealth with somebody else and make uh, don't keep it all for yourself it's yes. i think it's better to give than to receive i believe somebody said so yes absolutely love that and so like we will we'll plug uh, the website for yourself dave in the show notes so anybody that wants to go check out the rachel song uh get the book we'll have that in the show notes so that way people can go support, go listen and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it, it's phenomenal just what you've shared and really the biggest takeaway from everything for myself that's really sticking out is take the action. You've got the seeds in yourself. Go plant those and go take the action and bring it forward. So uh, other than that, <laughs> that's, <laughs> it's that's it's a big assignment. That. That's yeah. a pretty big assignment. <laughs> yes. yes, sir. It sure is. <laughs> You've been great to talk with, and uh, this is, well, we could go on talking all night, I know, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, it's been my pleasure, and maybe we can do this again some other time, And because I've got, I've got more stories than this, and who knows what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, no, appreciate it, and then for our Legacy Ninjas that are checking out, thank you for your time, thank you for allowing us to be part of your journey, and share perspectives that can help you unlock things that you're looking for. Other than that, we'll catch you next episode.